I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Scott Stein, international speaker and leadership expert and author of Leadership Hacks, Clever Shortcuts to Boost Your Impact and Results. One of the most common complaints from leaders from across the globe is that there is never enough time to keep up with an overloaded inbox. Scott Stein suggests that by hacking your approach, you can stay on top of your email, which gives you more time to focus on the important things. He has helped thousands of leaders implement fast-track strategies, which include four email hacks that improve results. Stein has worked with many of the world's best-known brands and government agencies, Mercedes-Benz, General Motors, McDonald's, and Habitat for Humanity. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Scott. Great to be here, Catherine. Well, this is very interesting because I think most of us, whether we are and maybe we're not CEOs or CFOs of companies, but we run our businesses, small businesses, this whole email thing is a problem. Uh, I Just speaking personally. So you have some really good ideas about how to cut down and manage our email so that we're not spending an overload, as you say, of time uh, on our emails when we should be doing other things that are much more beneficial, let's say, for our companies. So let's start with, okay, you have tip number one, and you go through four steps, and tip number two. So how do you want to do this? What would you say was one of the most common complaints that you hear from people that you work with in, in all these different companies in, in terms of how yeah. they're – yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would say if, if it comes to um, you know every person that I'm talking to right now, I always complain they never have enough time. Right, they're constantly overloaded, and if you think about it, in the digital world, everything is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and, the, and the big thing is email is constant, and that's only one thing I talked about my, in my book. But you know, even uh, McKinsey Global Institute had a report out, and they found on average staff spend 2.6 hours per day reading and answering emails. So that's 13 hours per week that's lost just by keeping, keeping up with your inbox, which is pretty shocking if you think about it. Yeah, it's very sorry, and I, that's why I do. I want to focus on that because that is sort of the universal problem. I think for anybody who's attempting to do any kind of business, as I said, you know, it it really has to this whole thirteen hours a week responding to emails is not a good practice. So what do we do? Maybe we should take it step by step. What are some of the approaches? How do we? Yeah, how do we clear these inboxes? Yeah. Yeah, so what I found, it, and this, this actually came from a leader that is in Asia-Pacific, she's in HR, and um, she's one of the most organized people that I know. And I started studying her and other leaders going, what do they do to stay on top of their emails, to keep it clean? And, and she used an, a, a kind of a four-step inbox hack that's kind of simple, but it's actually quite brilliant. Um, the first thing she does is she scans, so step number one is just scan your your inbox. Don't read through them. Just do a quick scan. The second step is delete straight away. Delete anything that's junk or anything that's not relevant or anything that's not important. So you declutter your inbox. Um, the third step is then sort. Um, sort the emails that are remaining. Now you can use that in one of your email programs. If you're on Gmail, you can do the automatic sort or you can do the same thing in Outlook as well. And then the final step is actually then respond. And just by following these four simple steps, it's going to save you some time because what I find is a lot of people, they just look at the very first email or the most recent one that came in and it may or may not be an important and that's where it wastes a lot of time. 
So in other words, we're compelled to like stick with that first email and uh, rather than just, if you have a protocol, I guess is what you're saying, right? You follow these four steps and you do it all the time. Correct. It sort of becomes more of a innate, spontaneous response to your emails and you don't get stuck on one that's probably not even that important. Um, okay. So you have to keep doing this, I imagine, and practicing so that you do it well and you, you do it quick. Yeah. 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 You do that. And, and one other strategy that you can use as well, which I talked about this in the book, is the 3210 system. And this actually kind of is a little method from uh, another author called Kevin Cruz. And he, he uh, talks about just checking your emails only three times a day. That's it, which is kind of interesting if you think about it in itself. And then what you do is you set your timer on your phone for 21 minutes. And you only dedicate that amount of time to get your inbox to zero. Now, I know a lot of people, when they go, geez, I can't, there's no way I could not only, you know, check my email three times a day. But what I find, even if you make it once an hour, but make it a bit of a game, right? Don't constantly check your email. And that's what people do throughout the day. They're constantly checking their email, which means it's actually breaking their flow of their other work activity. And a good strategy to use is turn off those notifications as well so you don't get interrupted every time a new email comes in. But what do we do? Because there's sort of, there is an addiction to this email thing. It's not quite as simple to do that. It's almost the same kind of an addiction, I would say. It's like alcohol or drugs or food. And it, I think it fits somewhat into that category. I mean, I'm in New York City. I'm on the subway. I, I take the train back and forth to the capital of, of, of to Albany. And everybody is always... On there, it's very quiet. It's quiet on the subway and quiet on the trains because everybody's just buried into their on their cell phones and and email. They're not talking on their cell phones. They're, uh, I assume, most of the time looking at their emails. So how do you psychologically break that habit? You know what I mean? I mean, so we have the tools. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting one because it's funny. I was just at dinner. I was just in New York uh, last week, and I was at dinner and I looked over and there was a family there. So it was a mom and a dad, and it was two teenagers. And it was interesting because all four of them were all individually on their own mobile phones. They weren't even having a conversation, you know, which is very, very interesting compared to what it used to be. And if you look at that, there's been some research that's out that's looking at what happens every time we take a look at that email, take a look at that inbox. And what the research is showing is in our brain, we've got lots of chemicals. One is dopamine. And what that does is quite often, every time people are actually checking their inbox, they get that little hit of dopamine into their brain, and that's actually almost like an addiction. And it can cause addiction because people want to keep checking it. And I think what you need to do is get on top of that and start controlling it. So a couple of strategies that you can use is limit the amount of time that you're going to check your emails, uh, reduce or turn off the notifications. In fact, it was an interesting study that was done a couple of months ago in the results were actually reported in the Harvard Business Review that showed even if you're doing work and you're at your computer or your laptop, even having a phone out invisible can actually decrease your cognitive thinking speed because people are so tempted at picking up that phone. Um, so sometimes if you're trying to get something done, even putting the phone in the drawer so it's out of sight um, will actually help you be more effective as well. So this is something, and now have you, I guess the before and after, I mean, you, because you work for these big companies that I mentioned earlier, have you actually gone in and tested this on, let's say, 
company managers, company leaders, does this actually work if you follow this protocol that's in your book that we've been talking about? Yes, very much. Very much. In fact, I just presented to a group on that, and a number of them actually had even started it, uh, which is great. Uh, because what it does, especially the four-step process, what it does is it makes it easy for people. Because most people get lost when they actually start going into the email, and they actually get junk email. So if you even think about the inbox that you have, you know, a lot of the things coming in are not important and they're not urgent. So and we only have so many hours in our day. By actually segmenting it and only focusing on the important ones and getting rid of the ones that aren't important, that's going to free up a tremendous amount of time. So, all right, we're, gonna, we're not going to be doing that 13 hours a week, you say, like hooked into our emails and and obviously that's going to make a difference yeah, because you can use that for better work in, in, in your company. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so is there's there also, anything? There's yeah, also an email send hack as well. So one of the things that I find for people, um, how do I get my staff to, you know, get better with their emails and how do I actually send an email that makes it clear for them so they know what to do with it? Because sometimes it's the volume of emails. Sometimes we do get an email and, the time is wasted because I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with the email. Um, and one thing that I found in the research of the book is and really any email that you send will have one of five outcomes. Um, the first outcome is FYI, just somebody needs to be aware of it. The second one is I need information from you. The third one is I need a decision from you to be made. The fourth one is I need you to take action on this specific area. And the final one is we need to meet because the information is so complex trying to cover it in email isn't going to work. So just by putting that in your subject line or at the very beginning of the email is going to help the person receiving the email get what's called context so they know what to do with the email. What that's going to do, it's going to save them time. So if you can actually hack your inbox, which will save you some time, um, and then if you actually let people know what you want them to do with the email, that's going to save them time when they actually are actually responding to the email. Yeah, I thought that was one of the greatest, the best, one of the best pieces of advice that you have, because I don't do that. And I don't, and I really get people when I get my emails who have done that, be very specific about what this email is so that you, as you say, so you know how to act on it and what to do. Um, That's very helpful. Uh, I I definitely, I mean, that is an easy to do. Um, Correct. Just put it in the subject line or, you know, or at the very beginning, just one of those five words like FYI or info or decide or act or meet. And that just gives them context so they know exactly what they need to do. And that's going to save everybody time. What what got you started on this? I mean, what made you decide to write this book uh, and uh, to write about leadership hacks? Where did that come from? Well, it, it kind of started, started a number of years ago. So I've been working across um, Australia as well as Asia Pacific. I've done work in Europe and across America as well. And what I was doing is working with leaders and helping them improve the way they communicate and mobilize their people. And what would happen over time is I would learn from a leader that I respected an approach or a process that they were using that wasn't commonly known. Um, and what I would do is I would remember that and I'd be working with another leader and I would share that approach with another leader. And they'd say, that's brilliant. Where did you find out about that? And then they would also say, can you give me more information on it? So I'd write a little white paper and go, oh, here you go. And one of my clients one day just said, can you just write the book? <laughs> can you write the book? Give, give me a whole range of hacks, a whole bunch of things that we can use 
so I can actually circulate that throughout my company. So in, in the book, there's kind of three sections. One are what are personal hacks, things that you can do to save yourself time. There's one-on-one hacks. So if you are a leader and you need to manage somebody, um, what can you do one-on-one to actually improve your impact and approach and uh, allow you to get more things happening faster with them? And then there's actually team hacks as well, which are what are you going to do to mobilize people at, at team meetings and get things happening faster? So how does this work? We've been talking about companies, but how does this work? Let's get it. I don't want to necessarily get into politics, but how would this work in government situations uh, in, in that kind of a context? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it definitely, it definitely works across industries, across sectors, and even in government as well. Because if you think about it, uh, government workers, they're all looking for kind of the same thing as everybody else, which is how do I get more things done in less time? How do I get through my emails quicker? How do I actually send emails faster? Um, how do I delegate to my staff? How do I run a team meeting that's more effective? So there's a series of hacks that are, occur across to all of them. And even the word hack, if you think about it, most people think of you know computer hackers from the 1970s and 80s. And that's really where the word really comes from. And if you think about it, these hackers were brilliant at finding shortcuts, shining, finding backdoors and finding ways to make things happen faster. And even Mark Zuckerberg, when he was actually floating Facebook, he had a what he called the Hacker Manifesto, which was really about how do we make sure that we don't lose that culture of hacking things. In fact, Facebook have a, a day every year that's called their Hacking Day, where they look to break old systems and improve it and make things go faster. And from a leadership perspective, a leadership hack is anything that helps you accomplish more in less time. It can include a shortcut that may not be commonly known, um, simplified steps that make a task easier to do, or fast-track processes that speed things up. So, Scott, what would you say, and maybe you've answered this question, but when it comes to technology and leadership, uh, do you feel that it has helped or is helping or hurting today's leaders? Yeah, great question. And what I find, it it really depends on the leader. So I know some leaders that are all across the technology, but they control the technology. The technology does not control them. And I think that's the biggest factor. Because if we are always wired in and we're always plugged in and we don't know how to manage the technology, that's when we feel overwhelmed because we're constantly bombarded by the digital information. So the leaders that are actually controlling and turning off the notifications, being really careful on Facebook. You know, it's interesting. I was talking with an executive not too long ago, and they were just complaining they never have enough time. And we started looking at the amount of time that they would spend on different apps and different sites. And on Facebook, it was easy for them when they go on Facebook to spend 15 minutes each time, right? Because you get in there and suddenly you get sucked in and you just lost 15 minutes. Well, they were actually checking their, their Facebook account four to six times per day. So that meant every day they were losing an hour to an hour and a half just on Facebook. And again, this is what I'm finding is a lot of people are not aware of where they're spending their time when it comes to the technology, and that's where they're losing their time as well. Yeah, that was my question. Like, are they, were they aware? They, they had no idea, I guess. They had no self-awareness. It's almost like being in therapy. You have to really first under, be able to be aware of the problem and then define it. But they're just going ahead and doing all this, and they have no idea. What about people who come out of MBA programs? Uh, do Is this something that they incorporate? Like, what you're talking about, is that incorporated into any of the MBA programs um, today? I'm, I'm- 
Yeah, unfortunately, not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. And I think it needs to be. I think we need to teach people how to be more efficient with your time. You know, and, and one of the biggest hacks that I teach kind of around the globe, in fact, I was uh, just in Boston not too long ago teaching this as well, is about delegation and, and delegation hack. You know, so people coming out with an MBA, they're going to have the MBA, they're going to go into management, um, and they don't know how to delegate effectively. So they just tell people what they want them to do, and then they complain when it doesn't happen. You know, because the old school ways of managing and leading are kind of gone. You can't take a 1990s approach in today's world. It just won't work. But, you know, people are bombarded with so many things on their inbox, as well as so many tasks at work. Um, we really need to get those next generations of leaders looking at how do they actually fast track the process and what hacks can they use to mobilize people in a less amount of time. Yeah, interesting concept because the, what about these, you know, you're talking about the 1990s approach, but yet you have a lot of leaders, a lot of heads of companies who came out of that, you know, they're in their, say, 60s. Uh, they weren't born into this this new approach to business as you're talking about. How do you juxtapose that with, say, like their younger people who they hire in the companies? I mean, it would seem to me that would be an, an issue uh, because their knowledge is very different or maybe more limited, the older uh, managers, CEOs, than say the younger uh, uh, people that they are hiring in, in in the company. So how does that work? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you bring that up, Catherine, because the younger generation coming into the workforce, even over the last five to ten years, um, they look at senior management and years of experience in a very different light than most of us that have been around for a couple decades. You know, because when I grew up somebody was a manager and they were in the role for 10 years, um, they instantly got respect because of that wisdom and because of that knowledge and just their position, you know, the positional power that they had. The younger generation coming out, they look at it very differently. In fact, they look at it going, all right, if you're a manager and you've been in the same role for 10 years, what's wrong with you? Um, how, you know, are you still taking the approach that you used to 10 years ago? You know, and are you actually hacking your approach? Are you leveraging technology? Are you doing things different? And that's a massive gap that I'm finding right now because the younger people, you know, if you, you know, in fact, they, they go prove to me that I should follow you as a leader that's been here for a while. And the challenge that I'm finding across the board, a lot of managers and leaders, you know, they might have been in the role for 10 years, but really they stopped learning nine years ago. So what that means is they're using the same mindset, the same approach, and the same what I call mental autopilot that they did nine years ago and the first year in the role, and they're just repeating that same process over and over and over. Can they change? I mean, or, or is that just something that, that, you know, they've been doing this for 10 years, they're not going to be able to change? Do you have to get out of the company? you have to retrain somebody else? And things happen Correct. so quickly. I, I, I think mean, it's a mix. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a mix. Um, what I'm finding is uh, some of them can be retrained. You can give them the skills, and um, a lot of companies are starting to do that. In fact, some companies are using what's called reverse mentoring. So they're using some of the younger people coming into the workforce to kind of teach some of the older senior execs or middle managers about the technology and the new platforms and the apps that you can use to, to manage things faster. Um, some, of course, are leaving the workforce, you know, which, which is challenging, and some people are trying to jump industries. Um, the challenge with that, what I'm finding, it doesn't matter what industry you're going to, um, almost every industry is saying, you know, you have to do more things in less time, 
and you have to make it happen faster. So unless well, things you know, can we get to faster and, and faster to the point where we can't adapt to it? I mean, it seems to me that every and I'm just sort of making up these numbers, but every six months things change. I mean, you know, technology changes. How do you keep in a company? How do you keep up with it? And how do you know maybe when not to change? Like because it's a constant sort of evolution that happens so quickly. Um, and you can't keep retraining people every six months. Well, how does that work? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's the biggest challenge. You know, the biggest challenge is technology is driving this, right? And the companies that can actually leverage technology to get more things done faster and get their people to mobilize their staff faster than the competition are the ones that are going to win. And I think that's what this massive shift is occurring right now to go, how do we get our managers to connect with our people and mobilize them faster. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really wrote the book, because I see this dilemma. I see the challenge that leaders have. You know, I call it the leadership dilemma. There's never enough time to get everything done. You know, and for a leader to make things happen, they have to be able to connect and leverage the abilities and capabilities of their people. So the companies that actually do invest and focus in developing their managers' skills to do this are the ones that will be in front. The ones that don't will probably be the ones that are like the Kodaks of the world and the other companies of the world that just don't exist anymore because they weren't able to change and weren't able to get their people to actually make that change. So what about uh, HR, human resources? That's a big challenge for them, isn't it? Uh, you know, the way you hire people, how you hire people, that, that what you're looking for is very different than what you would have been looking for, we're saying 10 years ago, in, in terms of high, uh, people that you want in the company? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. In fact, I just presented in um, Sydney, Australia, where I'm based, um, yesterday to a client. And it was interesting because I was talking with them about uh, new hires. It was a company that's going through a lot of fast growth and they're bringing a lot of staff in. And we were looking at their approach, and they've actually even shifted how they actually do their new hires. You know, the old days of let's just take a look at your resume and ask what are your weaknesses and what are your strengths, um, that doesn't cut it anymore. You know, so their interview process is tell us how you would do this process. It looks like you have experience in it. How would you do it? How would you speed it up? How would you make it more thorough and make sure that you can guarantee the quality? So now what they're getting people to do is they're getting people to actually be able to recall their hacks or their steps of the process of how they've made that happen in the past. And they want to know that they have that cognitive ability to actually do that. And the other thing that this company was looking at is um, actually putting them in simulations where they can actually see, does the person have those capabilities or not? That's a great idea. I think simulations are, I mean, that's a, per, a really good response, a good answer to that. Because then you're, there's no fudging it. I mean, you're, you're really going to see how the person reacts or responds to a particular uh, scenario or question or, or problem, I guess. Um, yes, and, yes. Yeah. And it's even more important if you're hiring somebody based on their experience. So your big challenge is in the past, we hire somebody because they have 10 years of experience in a particular area or field. Um, but today that doesn't cut it because I, I talked to somebody recently where they hired somebody and said, yeah, they had 10 years experience. We expected them to be brilliant. And after they were in the role for a couple of weeks, we realized the stuff that they were an expert in had been outdated over 10 years ago, you know, and they didn't pick it up on their interviewing process. So I think with HR, they're really having to kind of hack their approach to go, 
how do we find the best and the brightest and the people that are going to take our company forward into the future? So let's ch- turn it around. We've been kind of been talking about, we have been talking about the people who are running the companies and hiring uh, their staff. What about the people who are applying for the jobs? What can they do to put themselves in a position so they will be hired given the kinds of interviews or the kind of requirements that that you've been talking about? Yeah, great question, Catherine. I, I think it's it's about showing and having an ability to show their capability. So what that means is in the interview, being able to um, visually map and share some of the strategies that they use. So if you think about that, whenever you communicate, you can either tell, you can show, or you can ask. Those are what we call the three modalities. And in the interview, what you want to do is not just tell. Don't just talk about yourself. You want to show. So my recommendation is if you go and bring in some paper and actually map out some steps, show some processes that you've used in the past, or show them what are some ideas people can actually get their head around by mapping it either on a sheet of paper or on an iPad, people can see what your cognitive ability is. So it's not just having a bit of uh, uh, words and discussion. They can actually see it. And this is important, especially around steps. Because what I'm finding is most people want to know, can you actually problem solve? Can you project manage? And can you identify what steps and what order or sequence you need to take to execute those steps? If you map it out on paper or on a tablet in front of somebody, especially when you're interviewing, it shows that you actually have a very solid process, and that's somebody that somebody wants to hire rather than somebody that will just talk in circles um, that really doesn't capture any particular areas or steps on the fly. And I would assume we only have three minutes left, but that would be the same way you'd present a resume when you're writing your resume, not talking about how great you are or how fabulous you, what you, you know, all these accolades, but you really need to show specifically what you've done, why you are great or why you've done a good job or how you've run a company. Um, two minutes left. So Scott, give us, uh, I, I do have a website here or you have a website that we can go to uh, scottstein.com. Uh, any other Correct, websites? Yes. Yeah. At, any other websites or places that we can go for more information about you, about your work, what you're doing, about the book? Yeah, the website's probably the best thing to do. Again, it's www.scottstein, and Stein is S-T-E-I-N, um, dot com. Uh, you can go there. You can actually see the videos. I have video series up there that people can actually watch as well. Um, there's downloadable resources they can have. And, of course, they can pick up my book either at any um, good bookstore or through Amazon as well. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. A lot of good information. Uh, Scott Stein, and he is the author of Leadership Hacks, Clever Shortcuts to Boost Your Impact and Results. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great. Thanks, Catherine. It's wonderful being here. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Mark Borg, Ph.D., psychoanalyst and author of Relationship Sanity, Creating and Maintaining Healthy Relationships. Drawing Good on morning. Relatable- Good morning, Mark. <laughs> I, I just have to, I'm gonna, but before we start talking, I've just, I have a little bio here about you, so uh, <laughs> okay. I do want people to hear it. Uh, so good. here I go. Drawing on relatable case studies of those who address their dysfunctional, toxic, or estranged relationship relationships, Mark Borg and his co-authors, psychiatrist Grant Brenner and nurse Daniel Barry, show readers how to approach common relationship hurdles and offer invaluable tools for anyone seeking healthier connections with their partners, loved ones, and colleagues. Mark Borg is founding partner of the Community Counseling Group, a consulting firm that trains community stakeholders, local governments, and other organizations to use psychoanalytic techniques in community rebuilding and revitalization, and he is also a supervisor of psychotherapy at the William Allenson White Institute in New York City. Okay, now, good morning. How are you? (laughs) Good morning. I'm good. Thank you. Great. All right. So, uh, relationship sanity. I mean, I guess that's what most of us or all of us who want to be involved or engaged in a relationship are always seeking, but Somehow, probably most of us don't achieve that. So in reading your book, uh, we will be able to do that. And it, and uh, this comes after you also have written a best-selling book called Irrelationship. So this is a sequel to that, I assume. Um, right, it is. Yeah. 
Okay, so what's different about you? What is, why did you write Relationship Sanity? Why did you need to write this after you already wrote Irrelationship? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> so we actually wrote Irrelationship in responses that we were getting to a paper that I wrote many years ago called Human Antidepressant, which was about uh, sort of compulsive caretaking routines that I was seeing in couples that I was working with. And, uh, you know, people were saying, well, what's wrong with this? I mean, what's wrong with giving? What's wrong with caretaking? What's wrong with loving other people? And I, of course, said nothing is wrong with loving and caretaking and giving. Nothing, of course. That's exactly what we do in relationships. The problem I find or found and continue to find is that there's a way of giving, there's a way of caretaking where the care is going out in such intensity, with such consistency, with such force that I started to feel like it was being driven. And I was also starting to realize that there's a way of caretaking where that force going out actually blocks any kind of care, love, or support from coming in. So there's actually an irony here wherein giving in a particular way makes it impossible for you to receive what other people have to offer. In that relationship with someone, and they're giving and giving and giving and giving to you, and they're not taking in anything that you have to offer, over the course of time, you're going to start to feel like that person doesn't believe you have anything good to give. And I found that that was making people feel quite isolated in relationship, and that loneliness, I found, was making people feel quite crazy. Because you know, the reason why we have solitary confinement as the very worst form of punishment in our society because being isolated is crazy making. So relationship sanity is a way of addressing that compulsive caretaking routine and allowing people to learn how to create a balanced giving and taking uh, dynamic in their relationship. So where do you think that comes from? That And, and I, I, I see that as well, I think, as a social worker, just as, you know, in, in terms of friends and, and relatives and relationships and, you know, maybe even my in my own relationships, where does that kind of, that imbalance that you're talking about, where does that come from? I don't know if it's, is it a cultural thing? Is it something that's evolved over the past, I don't know when? Uh, is it uh-huh. going to change? Yeah. Well, we're, we're actually very, very specific about where it comes from. And it's, it's largely the subject of our first book. And we do touch on it here in Relationship Sanity. But we believe, you know, there was a psychoanalyst back in the 70s writing. He wrote a book called The Therapist as Analyst, uh, as the patient as therapist to his analyst. And his, Harold Thurl's assumption was that people are natural-born caregivers. We want, we need to care for each other. And he believed that it was so important to take care of each other that if we feel blocked from that, you know, we, we sort of feel like we lose our value. And so we took that idea of human beings being these natural caretakers who really need to have what we offer accepted, taken in, and made use of. And what we saw is if we go back to childhood and we find parents who say are not doing well, I would say a primary caretaker is depressed or a primary caretaker is full of anxiety or a primary caretaker has some kind of mental illness or addictive problem, what we found is that children, very young children, will start to take over 
the caretaking routine by acting in a particular way, trying to get a particular result from their parents. For instance, if they notice that a parent is unhappy, probably in the mind of a child, they won't say, oh, my mother has clinical depression. They will say, my mom's unhappy. And so they will start interacting with the parent in a way to try to elevate that parent's mood. If being smart makes the parent happy, if being compliant makes the parent happy, if being funny makes the parent happy, if being absent and having very little uh, you know, demand for the parent's attention and care makes the parent happy, then the kid will adopt this as a routine because the kid needs the parent to be well. The parent, kid needs the parent to be well enough to take care of the kid, sort of the circular, you know, the circular dynamic. And so the kid will then learn how to take care of people who really ought to be taking care of her or him, and they will carry that caretaking routine into all of their relationships, blocking consistently any kind of attempt for the world, i.e. other people, to care for them. So that this is where it comes from. So this is kind of that, as you're describing it, it's suffocating and it's compulsive and it's really unhealthy in terms of developing a relationship later on, that child who grows up. Do you think mm-hmm. that that also is related to this helicopter parenting Uh, in a way that's a little bit different. I know it's a little bit off, but that kind of compulsive need to be in control, to feel that you're total, you know, the caregiver for, um, for your children in that way, that that's, is is that another way of expressing this kind of behavior? No, that's a really good question. And, um, and we haven't really thought that much about, we thought about a lot of different parenting styles that probably result in this irrelationship routine. And I hadn't thought of that quite in the way that you described until literally right this second listening to, and I'm like, you know, that's, that's really an interesting perspective. The idea that a parent on top of a child in a way isn't allowing the child to, you know, develop their own way of being in interaction with the world. They're not allowing the child to kind of have the freedom to go out and to make the mistakes, to drop the ball, to figure out routines that are working for them. In a funny way, the parent might be slotting the child in a caretaking role much more directly than what we're talking about. In fact, you know, one of the main noxious kind of emotional states that I think kids are trying to sort of quote treat in their parent is anxiety. And I think you're absolutely right because I think the helicopter parent is largely driven by anxiety. And I think kids are incredibly intuitive and that they will pick up they will pick up on whatever that anxiety is in the parent and they will behave accordingly. They will behave in whatever compliant way they believe will make the parent feel better. It's clear that a parent going after their child constantly cannot be living in a calm emotional state. So it's really interesting to consider the way in which children, you know, uh, treating, sort of quote, treating uh, a helicopter parent might very well be repeating exactly this compulsive caretaking routine. Now, getting back to the relationship that you have as an adult and the the one uh, uh, person in the relationship who was sort of exhibiting or is exhibiting this compulsive caregiving kind of behavior towards the other person. Uh One of the things that you say, because I want you to address this, is that you say that, well, okay, let's say the person had, um, you know, growing up had uh, 
these sort of ingrained relationship patterns that weren't very good, and that's why they're behaving they are and in the way that they are in adult relationships. But you say you can't really change patterns of behavior. You have to you you have to you can't totally break those patterns of behavior. Don't try to do that. Um, you have to sort of, I guess, manage it, but not you're not going to be able to go back and and totally reverse what happened to you uh, as a child. Well, the nice thing about this model and uh, the exploration that we've been on, given the publication of the first book and then the second book, because the second book is our it's our study of all of the questions that we were asked by readers. You know, they're like, hey, thanks a lot for telling us about this huge problem, you know, and can you please help us do something about it? So relationship sanity is just that. It's not so much that we don't change because we actually believe that people are changing all the time. It's that when it comes to these compulsive caretaking behaviors, it's not even necessary so much to change the, the behavior. It's more necessary to find a way to drop your guard so that other people will be able to contribute to you. And then it's not necessarily just you who is changing. It's actually the relationship itself. And when the relationship starts to change, it provides room, not just for you to change, but for you to actually feel safe in a relationship and then allow the relationship to transform you the way that people are transformed when they love each other, the way that people are transformed by being in immersive experiences, which a relationship is. You know, I actually feel that a lot of the defenses that come up about, you know, getting into relationship and being intimate with other people and empathetic and vulnerable and invested is our terror. That if I go into a relationship as me, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to be so transformed by the experience that I won't know who I am anymore. And what we're saying is that's a good thing. You know, like that's, that's what the process of loving is all about. It's about going in and going from an I and a you to a we, this third entity that we are not in control over. So it's not just that we believe like, oh, you can't change it. You don't need to. You don't need to put your emphasis on personal change. You kind of need to go in and drop your guard and allow yourself to be transformed by experience. Yeah. Well, intimacy and trust, aren't those the two big issues that people are terrified? Uh, they Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yes. Terrified. Yeah. And that, but now, <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of this, especially with the millennials, the younger generation, they do this uh, hooking up. That's, that's the, you yeah. know, and so that really is just a 180 from intimacy and trust, right? Um, yeah. Which yes, it is. Does, but it's also, yeah. I think it's also kind of a, a playing out of the, like, maybe it is a, a funny kind of refusal, a protest against getting into these old dynamics against like, okay, I saw it played out this way. I saw that it only went that far. I saw that my parents were unfulfilled and unsatisfied and we're sort of holding out, you know, as millennials, let's say, uh, to figure out what kind of novel, you know, ways of being in relationship might, we might create along the way. I think that it's possible that if the, you know, younger generation is able to drop some of the old guard, they too might be able to get into very unique kinds of relationship. And maybe 
what I see in my practice because I see a lot of couples and I even see, you know, very young couples. And what I see a lot of times is they are holding out to get involved with other people who don't want to be stuck in the same routines that they were offered by their parents. They literally want to get into relationships with people and much more consciously develop uh, a way of being in a relationship that is not founded on the old models that they internalize from their parents. That's, that's obviously a tough job, but it's not impossible. Yeah, no, it is a tough job, I think, on a personal level and each individual family, but culturally, I mean, because the, the, I think the, uh, at least I think the overall culture doesn't support the relationship. It's, it, and I, I guess I want to know, like in your research and do you, what are the gender differences? There must be some gender differences when it comes to this kind of behavior, male, female. I mean, are there are one or the other, uh, would you say, want to be, you know, get involved in this caretaking, this compulsive caretaking and, and wanting to take over or are there no differences? Mm. Well, no, no, I think there are differences, but I think there are differences more in terms of how they manifest. I think, you know, along gender lines, you, a lot of times I find that the man wants to take care of the relationship by going out and conquering the world and being a captain of industry and, you know, bringing home the, butter, the, the bread and butter and all that kind of stuff. And then I think though a woman might want to caretake by being more emotionally available and nurturing and caring. And that, you know, a lot of times, interestingly, you know, they're both people, are really doing this caretaking with the best of intentions, but they're, whatever the care is, they're so blocked. You know, I think about this kind of care as a fire hose. And you just, and you're spraying care at like maximum volume. So like the other person's care can't get in. Get in. I think men and women are very interested in caring for each other. They may do so in such dramatically different ways though that it doesn't translate. I mean, I find this with gay men and, and gay women as well, that a lot of times it's not just gender lines. It's also, you know, who you think of yourself as, you know, what's your role in the relationship. Yeah, it's more of a role thing rather than a gender thing. I was going to ask you about right. gay couples. Right, yeah, so right, exactly. You t- yeah, you take on so these there's roles. A, there's a little more flexibility. Yeah, there's a little more flexibility, but still, I mean, still, you know, I mean, I, you know, occasionally I'll be, work, you know, I'll have a couple in here and, and some woman will be complaining, you know, she's like, you know, oh, you know, when he wants intimacy, he like grabs my butt, you know, and I'm like, yeah, probably that's not going to work so well, right? You know, that, <laughs> that's some kind of lunging attempt, which in our model, of course, would be exactly the way that you get thwarted. You know exactly when you grab somebody like that, wherever you grab them, that you're not going to be getting intimacy, uh, certainly of a sexual type tonight. Well, interestingly, so that's a role, right? There we, typically, we see the man in that role. He's kind of lunging for the woman. And there I am, occasionally I'm with a gay couple, and one of the guys is going, hey, yeah, you know, he reaches out and he grabs me, and that is much less an invitation to intimacy, especially of a sexual type, than it is a setup for a kind of rejection. So people, you know, sometimes think they're being rejected when really they're just playing along. They're playing a a role where both people are feeling uncomfortable about intimacy. So you do this thing that you know is going to shut the intimacy down and then both people take a deep sigh and a breath of relief and say, oh, thank goodness, you know, we don't have to face that terrifying moment of being actually emotionally, physically, sexually intimate with each other tonight because though we think we want it and consciously we do, there's also something very, very frightening about being naked, 
with someone else, naked emotionally, naked physically, like really allowing ourselves to love and care for each other, even in that, maybe especially in that way. Yeah, that's scary stuff. That's the most scary, right? And so what you're <laughs> <Yeah>. saying, <laughs> uh, you have to be aware that I get, well, obviously, uh, and uh, of you have to be aware that you're doing it. You know, like you said, you have these conscious, you know, I want to be close to this person, but you're saying unconsciously you're doing things that are definitely not going to improve intimacy. It just has the opposite effect. So exactly. given, because I'd be exactly. interested in your case, like give us some examples, P- perhaps give us an example of like the most difficult or one of the most difficult situations that you've been confronted with as a, as a psychoanalyst and that you've been able to resolve with a couple. Well, okay. So, I mean, I, I have a couple of patient zero couples. You know, one is this Glenn and Vicky who we wrote a lot about in our first book, and we write blog after blog about them because they were so par excellence. But the moment of real working through happened when I had this, I had this gay couple that I, that I saw for quite a while, and one of them was this big Broadway star, and he was, you know, doing all this work in Broadway, and he was making money, and he was paying for the therapy, and he was doing all these 12 step groups and he had some superstar personal therapist and, and, uh, you know, he had his boyfriend who, you know, he really loved, but he was off, off Broadway and he was, you know, (laughs) struggling and he was working as a waiter. And, and so, you know, they came in and they clearly had these differences and the, and the Broadway guy would just sit on my couch and he would go like, Oh, you know, I'm doing so much and I'm working so hard and I'm paying for everything. And of course he's thinking, that what he wants from his partner is gratitude, you know, is some kind of like taking it in and making use of it. And isn't it so great? I have this wonderful boyfriend and he's such a star and he nurtures me. But that is exactly the opposite of what was happening. You know, the other guy could barely stay awake in session. He was so bored. You know, just like <laughs> the guy was just going on and on and on. And so finally, one day, as this guy was trying to convince everybody in the room, that being his boyfriend and I, about how generous he was. I finally stood up, literally stood up from my chair and I said, you need to stop being so selfish. And the guy was like aghast. He was like, what? What are you talking about? And I said, you give and you give and you give. And you give with such an intensity that your boyfriend here, the off-off-Broadway guy, yeah. doesn't have, you won't let him give you anything. He has plenty of things to offer. He's here with you. He's working on this with you. He's loving you. He's accepting all of these things that you have to offer, but you're so loud and you're so boisterous and you're so, you know, full of volume and this intensity that you will not let him, you will not take in anything that he has to offer. Now, whether that was some transformational moment for them, which I think it was, but really it was a transformational moment for me and my thinking about that, because that's the moment that we, you know, Grant, Danny, and I really grabbed a hold of this idea of how important it is in regard to sanity to drop our guard and let other people love us, to take in what they have to offer. So this was, it was a very, very difficult case, but it was really, um, you know, it was just very, very enlightening to see that what, and so many people, when I've told them to stop being so selfish because of the way they're giving, at first they're so taken aback. But then they take a breath and realize that not only have they been giving in this really intense, really crazy way, but in doing so, they have isolated themselves. They have been lonely. They have been miserable. They have been resentful, thinking that their partner didn't love them. It wasn't that their partner didn't love them. It was that they weren't letting them love. 
They weren't letting the love their partner was offering in. And, is- you, know, the inter- you know, the interesting thing is we have a little bit of a kind of a flip on this, too, because we don't think that it's just this guy. We don't think it's just the Broadway guy who's doing all the giving. We also think in your relationship that the off-off Broadway guy has a part, too. And he sits there not really entering the relationship. He stands on the sidelines. And the way that he compulsively care gives is he keeps mostly acting as if what the Broadway guy is giving to him is working. He, he acts as if he is accepting it. He's here in therapy. He's, you know, doing, he's accepting that they live together and his partner pays rent. But he's not. He's not taking in what he actually has, has to offer. He's just acting like he is. He's playing a role. That, you know, that brings tears to my eyes, that example. I mean, it's so mm. right on. Yeah, it's really right on. And I think there, I mean, so many, I mean, that really defines, uh, you know, I'm making that, you know, it's probably 60 or 70% of most people's relationships. You have that kind of a dynamic going on. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm just, it's so anyway, so you, huh. and are they cured? Uh, they, they're still together. I mean, they, they were in therapy for a few years with me and they, uh, they will drop me a line. In fact, I have this beautiful, um, painting here on my, uh, on my desk that, that, that one of them sent me, uh, you know, a year later telling me how, how grateful he was. And it was the, it was actually the off, off Broadway guy who sent it to me. He's, he's, uh, he, he sent me this beautiful, beautiful painting that I've had on my, on my desk here for years. So, yeah, now he's, they, on, they, they, he's on Broadway. <laughs> I don't know if he ever Broadway. made it to Broadway. <laughs> I don't think that was the point. <laughs> you know, like, uh, that, that's a great example. We only have one minute left. Um, I can, okay. it, yeah, very interesting. And um, I just want to mention the book again, Relationship Sanity, Creating and Maintaining Healthy Relationships. Mark Borg uh, website we can go to, Mark, so we can get, you know, read the book and get more information about you and what you're doing and, and, um, so give us a, a, a website. Yeah come, yeah, come visit us at www.irrelationship.com. We have two blogs on psychology today. One is called Irrelationship. One is called Relationship Sanity. And you can, you know, you can find our book on any, you know, Amazon or any bookseller. Um, you can go down here to Union Square, New York City, and pick one up at Barnes & Noble. Right. Um, Catherine, it's been wonderful, wonderful talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. Great talking to you. We'll have to have you on again. Thank you. I'd I'd love to come back. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 